0: Welcome to Immuno Tea, your immunology podcast. We're your hosts, I'm Bianca Reddenbaugh.
1: And I'm Lara Dungan. And this is the podcast where we tell you all about the most exciting research going on in the world of immunology. So grab a cup of tea or eggnog, depending on what you're <laughs> feeling like at the moment. Sit down and relax and we'll fill you in.
0: We're here to talk about what research is being done, what new treatments we should be watching out for, and what's happening in the immunology labs and clinics all around the
1: world. If you want to get in contact with the show, as many of you have, please feel free to email us on immunoteapodcast at gmail.com. Immunity is spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at immunotea, that's T-E-A.
0: Now, I'm delighted to introduce our guest for this month. Professor Helen Lachman completed her medical degree in 1992 in the University of Cambridge and her MD from University College London. Helen works as a professor and honorary consultant nephrologist at University College London.
1: Helen specializes in amyloidosis and the autoinflammatory diseases. She has published widely and her main scientific interests are focused on the phenotypic characterization and treatment of acquired and hereditary forms of systemic amyloidosis and the genetics and management of the inherited systemic auto-inflammatory conditions. Helen, you are very welcome to the show. Thank you. Helen, a lot of your work revolves around auto-inflammatory diseases, but for anyone who maybe is not familiar with this topic, could you explain what an auto-inflammatory disease is?
2: So auto-inflammatory diseases are ancient diseases, and most of the best-recognized ones are genetic, although they were only really first recognized through the 20th century, and the term was first used by Dan Castor in 1999. And they are really the polar opposite of classic autoimmune diseases, in that these are disorders of innate immunity. And the genetic ones can be defined as germ encoded diseases, which result in upregulation of innate immunity. And they are driven by neutrophil and monocyte activation of macrophages, rather than B cells or T cells, resulting in overproduction of inflammatory cytokines. And the initial description of them in 1999 said that these were disorders of innate immunity, which were not driven by autoreactive antibodies or T cells. As time has passed, we've recognized that there are a number of acquired diseases and also that as always, it's more complicated than the initial rather elegant descriptions of a spectrum between innate immunity at one end, acquired immunity at the other with Auto inflammatory diseases as disorders of overactivation of the innate immune system at one end, and classic autoimmune diseases as acquired immune disorders at the other end. Now, recognise that there's a very interesting field in the middle because obviously these two systems cross talk. But the simplest way of thinking about it is that these are the two separate halves of the immune system, and these are the two different disorders.
0: That's great. Thank you for highlighting the difference between the auto inflammatory syndromes and autoimmunity, because the latter is something most people have heard about, but auto inflammatory syndromes aren't as well known. So, when we think about that, when should clinicians be suspicious of this, and what kind of specialties do they generally present to?
2: So classic auto-inflammatory diseases will present as recurrent episodes of systemic inflammation, which may be fever, but isn't always occurring from very early in life, which are very dramatic, but are self-limiting with periods in between of near normal health. So in children, they tend to present as what looks like recurrent episodes of infection and therefore may present to infectious diseases. In adults, they've often been missed for many, many years and can present to almost any specialty. It's actually pretty typical for us now in adult practice that in the clearly inherited diseases, which are often dominant, that we will pick adults up because their children have been picked up and will then go to the adult. Can we have a look at the rest of you as well? But so they can present to almost any specialty, but infection tends to be where they come in the young. In adults, we may see them coming to dermatology if there's rashes. Uh, I always say this about rashes because there's something I'm really concerned about. There's major ascertainment bias with the rashes. The rashes are beautiful. We photograph them because they're so lovely. They're classical. They're lovely to photograph. But these rashes are evanescent. They're often quite pale. They are much, much easier to see and more dramatic on pale-skinned Northern Europeans They are very hard to see on skin of colour, and they must not be used as a major diagnostic criteria because you will miss these diseases in a large proportion of the world's population if you say that rashes are absolutely required. But they can present to dermatology. They can present to rheumatology. We've had them present to dentists because you can get very nasty mouth ulcers. So we've had people come from oral care to us. Uh, They can look like lymphoma, so they can come via the haematologists. We've had patients who frankly being treated as psychiatric because they keep coming with symptoms. And if you don't do the blood tests, you may say, what's the matter with this patient? We've had a number come through accident and emergency as frequent flyers. Uh, The things that should make you pay attention are blood tests are really off during episodes. So you would expect to see enormously high markers of acute inflammation. Uh, We rely very heavily on CRP, but you can do it with white cell count, ferritin. They're all off and they tend to normalize between. Uh, Patients are very distressed. A number of these episodes are very, very painful. And then in between, they often normalize. Uh, That means that often with these diseases, unlike classic inflammatory diseases uh, in childhood, the children often grow quite well. So we often don't see very, very sick looking children. They can look great between episodes. A number of publications that we've looked at, including from us and also uh, ones with our collaborative work around the world, have shown that the adults that we see have had a median of five wrong diagnoses before we make the diagnosis, and the median diagnostic delay remains very long. This is actually quite difficult to look at because many of these diseases we've only actually managed to characterize and get the genes for fairly recently, and therefore they couldn't be diagnosed earlier. And a number of them have actually when you look at their clinic letters, had very shrewd clinicians who clearly described the features of what they had and said, this is a rare disease. There will be a better diagnosis later, but they couldn't be diagnosed until you have the gene. So you can't entirely say that we're much better diagnosticians now when you've only got the disease now. And you can't say that the pediatricians are better diagnosticians than adult physicians because they are diagnosing now when you couldn't do it before. But the pediatricians will tell you that their diagnostic delay is in the order of months to a year or two. The adult physicians will say our diagnostic delay is in the order of years to a decade or two. But of course, that reflects the age of the patients. But we still, what I'm really saying is we still see a lot of patients who've had a very, very long diagnostic delay. These are genuinely very rare diseases. Familial Mediterranean fever is common in core populations. So in the Mediterranean, it's the commonest genetic disease. It's a terribly named disease. So, it's absolutely designed to stop somebody getting diagnosed with familial Mediterranean fever if they attend AE. It's recessive, so patients will not give a family history. They do have a fever, but patients almost never complain of fever, they complain of pain. So, this is familial recessive, recurrent episodes of severely painful serocitis affecting the abdomen or the chest. And although it's common in populations arising from the eastern Mediterranean, it's seen in all world populations at a low frequency. Aside from that, the other diseases are present in frequencies of one to two per million at most frequent, down to only a few kindreds reported. They are nonetheless diagnoses that are regarded as being extraordinarily high value, because for a number of these diseases, untreated, this is devastatingly unpleasant for the patient and their family, and is associated with a high risk of really severe disease associated damage, and a high risk of early death. And we have really good treatments. So these are what we would very much like to see for everybody being in the very short list of, okay, you're never going to see it. But if you do, this is a transformative diagnosis, because you can put patients on truly effective treatment.
1: That is amazing to hear all of that. I feel one of the things that you're really telling us there is that the bloods are vital. So can I assume that if you do not see raised inflammatory markers, then you can safely say this is not an auto-inflammatory disease? And also, I just wonder, why do people flare? I mean, I know somebody has the disease. What is it that causes someone to be perfect one day and then presumably within a day or a week be flaring?
2: So there's two really good questions there. Almost all of these diseases, if they are symptomatic and tell you it's their disease and their inflammatory markers are completely flat, it will not be auto-inflammatory. There are one or two caveats with very rare diseases, but on the whole, that's true. But you cannot do that unless you are certain about the timing of your acute phase response bloods. So CRP and serum amyloid A protein are very short half-life proteins. It takes them about 12 hours to go up in terms of having time for hepatocyte production to actually be measurable in the blood. And it takes the half-life is about 12 to 13 hours when the inflammatory stimulus stops. So you have to know when the blood was taken before you can say that the normal bloods are meaningful. And having somebody who's come to clinic always been well in clinic but tells you that when they haven't managed to have a blood they were symptomatic doesn't mean that they don't have disease. But if you bled them within 24 hours of onset of symptoms but more than 12 hours after and the bloods are consistently normal that pretty much excludes it. The question about why patients flare is endlessly fascinating and we don't know why. There are one or two diseases where we're quite clear about where they flare Uh, One of those is called mavalonic kinase deficiency, and there are some really good prompts for flare there, uh, one of which is intercurrent illness, another of which is vaccination. In mavalonic kinase deficiency, we think the problem is genuinely uh, an absence of enzyme activity. Uh, Mavalonic kinase, which is an enzyme in the cholesterol biosynthetic pathway, although the problem is almost certainly flux down the isoprenoid pathway and a failure toprenylate RORET, GTPases, and that enzyme is temperature sensitive, uh, and you've already got low enzyme activity, and as the body temperature rises, enzyme activity drops, and intercurrent infection and vaccination probably rises the body temperature enough to drop enzyme activity. With almost all the other diseases, we genuinely don't know why patients flare, and it's a really interesting question why you get episodic disease from a fixed genetic defect, and one I'd really like to be able to answer. When you talk to the patients, what they normally tell you is that if they're aware of a precipitate for flares, it's the stresses and strains of the daily life that you cannot control. It's an annoying day at work. It's getting cold on the bus. It's not life disasters. I mean, I think generally speaking, the thing that you can rely on precipitating attack for most people is a budget airline flight. So that most patients, particularly if they have a family, (laughs) will start their holiday with an attack once they've had to get their family through EasyJet or Ryanair. Ryanair, (laughs) apparently.
0: Helen, you've talked about mavalonic kinase deficiency and familial Mediterranean fever. Can you tell us a bit more about some other common, well, relatively common um, autoinflammatory syndromes?
2: Yeah. So in the spectrum of very rare diseases, we tend to focus on the big four. And the big four are two recessive and two dominant. So the two recessive are familial Mediterranean fever, which in the right area is genuinely, if not common, then at any rate, fairly frequent. And familial Mediterranean fever is a recessive disease due to mutations in MEFV on chromosome 16. It was the first recognized of these diseases and is the most common. And it is interesting genetically in that it is a recessive disease due to gain of function mutations. This is work done both from largely from Dan Kastner's group at NIH in the States, and there's some beautiful work from Beijing as well. What we now understand is that mutated protein forms are inflammasome, the pyrin inflammasome, which activates interleukin-1. And there's some really very elegant work suggesting that this is very important in recognizing a number of intracellular bacterial toxins, some of which are responsible for bacterial diarrhea Uh, And some of which um, there's a really nice story around Yersinia pestis and plague, suggesting that this may actually have had carrier advantage and that there has been persistent selection for pathogenic mutations in MEFV, which may well have to do with survival advantage against a number of really very lethal infections. But if you have two pathogenic mutations, you get recurrent overactivation of the IL-1 inflammasome in neutrophils and cells of the monocyte macrophage lineage. And then you get recurrent attacks of polyserositis, which is unbelievably painful. 85% of attacks are in the abdomen, 15% of attacks are the chest. We tend to see presentation in late toddlerhood, so between three and four, but that is a bit confused by the fact that it's about when children can really start localising pain, telling you when things really hurt. In families where there's been a previous affected individual, we see presentation a bit earlier because the parents are more sensitive to the very distressed child. This was a disastrous disease historically, very stigmatised because these kids couldn't complete education, couldn't work. There was a degree of infertility in the women due to her pelvic inflammation, and there was an appallingly high death rate. So in the Sephardi Jews of the North African coast, uh, it was reported that 10% were dead before they were 10, and 40% before they were 40, and they died of renal failure due to AA amyloidosis. Her terrible painful disease associated with very poor outcomes, both socioeconomically and just in terms of survival. And this was transformed by the entirely serendipitous discovery uh, in 1972 by a Dr. Goldfinger in New York that Colchizine was effective as long-term prophylaxis in preventing attacks. And he wrote a letter to the New England Journal saying this. And although there have been trials since which demonstrated it, the treatment effect is so powerful that you really don't need trials. This is absolutely beautiful medical miracle. Right dose of colchizine familial Mediterranean fever attacks drop off. And for most patients, and there's very nice work, publications from both Turkey and Israel, uh, well-treated FMF now has both a life expectancy and a health expectancy, which is the same as age-matched healthy population, including fertility outcomes. So this is a disease which has gone from total disaster to we will manage this in the expectation that you will have a normal life. This has been helped recently uh, by very nice publications uh, in the cardiovascular literature in particular, where colchizine is very much the flavour of the month now, suggesting that long-term low-dose colchazine, particularly in primary prevention, in secondary prevention, but now also some papers in primary prevention, may be very useful in reducing risks of common or garden ischemic heart disease and cerebrovascular disease. So we can now also talk to patients about the fringe benefits as you age from colchazine in terms of your risk of heart attack and stroke. And although the data is less good, there's also a suggestion of benefit too for all-cause mortality from cancer uh, and possibly also for glucose resistance and type 2 diabetes. So that makes FMF a very nice story. And then there's also an IL-1 story which might touch on at the moment. The second recessive disease is mavalonic kinase deficiency, which is at the other end of the spectrum in our big four in terms of commonness. Mavalonic kinase deficiency is genuinely very rare. This is an obligate recessive disease. FMF, we do see a few patients who've only got one mutation, particularly in atypical mutations. Mavalonic kinase deficiency, you have to have two mutations. They have to be in trans. You have to have had inherited one from each parent. It's a genuine enzyme deficiency. It presents within the first six months of life. These kids are ill very early uh, and it looks a little bit like Crohn's sometimes. So lymphadenopathy, mouth ulcers, quite a lot of GI upset. The most beautiful, that's a very crude way of saying it, but the most beautiful rash, really, really good morbidiform rash, beautiful blotchy rash all over the place. Very, very photogenic in pale skin kids. And this is a miserable disease for the children often precipitated by vaccination. So a really good clue in the history is were the kids fully vaccinated and they tend not to be so clearly sick after their first vaccines that their parents don't take them back to complete courses. It's an interesting disease in that some children will ameliorate with age, some won't. Uh, it was very difficult to understand what the problem was, it seems to be a metabolic disorder and total enzyme deficiency is associated with a different and very life-threatening metabolic disease, malvalonic acid urea. Some children will present with HLH mass and they're probably the treatment of choice is bone marrow transplantation. In the less severe disease, in mild disease, steroids or even colchicine may be helpful. In the more severe disease, we've given cytokine blockade. And what has been transformative for us has been the recognition that long-term inhibition with prolonged IL-1 blockade is probably the most effective treatment we have at the moment for IL-6 blockade. It's a tricky one to treat. But we have got better at it over time. And it's genuinely very rare and commoner down the northwest European littoral where there is a founder mutation. The two dominant diseases are commoner. So they are probably in northwest Europe at about one to two per million. They are probably the same around the world, but there's significant ascertainment bias, partly because presenting with fever gets more investigated. In the wealthier parts of the world, where endemic infection is commoner, and partly because you need to be able to do genetic testing, and that requires a privileged health environment. These two diseases are traps: TNF receptor-associated periodic fever syndrome, which was first described um, by Michael McDermott, Irish physician, uh, in Dan Kastner's lab in 1999. Uh, This had previously been described clinically and rather whimsically as familial hibernian fever, thought to be more common in Ireland. I think that was again, ascertainment bias with a couple of big families. Uh, And this is a disease which clearly is dominant and causes prolonged attacks from childhood or fever with very variable symptoms, including abdominal pain without peritonism, rash, lymphadenopathy, swelling. You can get fasciitis, although it's relatively rare, can be complicated by AA amyloidosis. Initially, in children, the attacks are quite short-lived and steroid-responsive. In adulthood, we often see the attacks becoming chronic, and then we move on to biologic treatment. We initially thought, because why wouldn't you? Mutations were found in the TNF receptor. The first generation of anti-TNF agents were available. We thought you could treat them with anti-TNF agents. It doesn't work. They respond absolutely beautifully to IL-1 blockade, and that turns out to be because the abnormal TNF receptor protein is never trafficked to the cell surface in this disease. This is a disorder of protein folding. The abnormal receptors are trapped in the endoplasmic reticulum. And this is a disease of ER stress, pyroptosis and apoptosis. uh, And this results in disordered IL-1 signaling. And it is fascinating that what seems to be a number of different mechanisms deriving from ER stress responds beautifully to IL-1 blockade. CAPS was described initially in the 1940s and has been described as three different diseases reflecting a disease severity spectrum. It causes a syndrome which can be precipitated by cold or damp and can just occur in a cyclical fashion every day with a circadian rhythm of general flu-like misery, red eyes, which can be due to inflammation of the eyes at any level from the most superficial all the way down to genuine papilledema. But you can get uveitis, character conjunctivitis, episcleritis, um, and genuine optic neuritis with it, enough to cause blindness. Uh, you can get meningitis, causing meningitic headaches and also progressive sensing neural hearing loss through childhood. You get an absolutely characteristic urticarial rash that is not itchy but can be hot and painful, looks amazingly dramatic, but goes with no evidence of pigmentation or scarring. It can be associated with bony abnormalities. 20% of patients are clubbed. There's often quite a characteristic facial appearance with a little bit of frontal bossing, slightly small noses. These are slightly angelic looking children. And you can get very severe knee abnormalities in the most severe forms. The most severe forms, these children tended not to live to adulthood uh, and did very badly. The less severe forms, people just got on with it uh, and were generally a, bit, a little bit miserable. The recognition that this was caused by a single gene, this was the disease severity court for spectrum, came in the early 2000s at about the same time that our unit uh, published that our pa- two patients who had severe AA amyloidosis had got better when we given them IL 1 blockade. And this was a moment of magical coming together, really, of an ability to recognize the patients, make a genetic test, treat with highly effective agents. And this was at a time when drug companies were interested in our one blockade, which was, had been tried and had been a little disappointed in rheumatoid arthritis, but there were a number of agents coming through, and we were offering them the perfect human model, which suddenly meant that we could do drug trials, and could do drug trials in a very rare disease, and that opened the gateway in autoinflammation for orphan diseases to be used as very very clean human models for looking at single cytokine blockade, and that has been beneficial across multiple groups, because it's meant that we can offer our patients really good therapies that are licensed for them, where we've done proper trials for them. It's been scientifically fascinating, because we've been able to essentially do the Cox postulate of immunological disease in that we have a potential mechanism, we have a gene, we have what we hope is molecular understanding of the pathology, and we can go in with a single drug and see whether we're right, because you can try and understand your mechanism. First time we did it, of course, we did it slightly backwards. We had the gene, we had the drug, and then the mechanism came as proof afterwards, really, once we'd already knew what the answer was. And then finally, of course, for pharmacology and the pharmaceutical industry, it's been the most beautiful and very efficient model for demonstrating that drugs work. And this has meant that we can actually treat most of these patients now. And one of the most elegant things that's happened in the last five years is something that was called the cluster study, which was led by a colleague of mine called Fabrizio de Benedetti in Rome. And what we did there as a community was we put together patients with familial Mediterranean fever who either could not tolerate or were not responding to colchicine, patients with TNF receptor superfamily 1A traps associated disease, and patients with mavalonic kinase deficiency. And these are three rare genetic diseases. We know the gene defect, different chromosomes for all of them. We know the pathology, completely different pathology for all of them. But we knew that all of them had a final common effector mechanism, which was our one blockade. And we did a rare disease trial where we did took separate diseases, adults and children, separate phenotypes, but a single common disease mechanism. And that meant that we could put together three rare diseases. We only needed 60 patients. And we could prove disease mechanism, efficacy, safety, and get a licensed indication across three rare disease groups, uh, which has now meant that we can treat all of these rare disease groups with R01 agents with complete proof, having pulled together three rare disease groups. And that's the first time in the world that we've managed to do that.
1: It must feel almost like magic, I'd say, when you treat these patients and just see this. Unbelievable change. I'm wondering about the cytokines because obviously you've brought in IL-1, IL-6. Do we measure the functional output in terms of the cytokines or is that even diagnostically useful or really do you just want to go to the genetic test and that's the diagnosis?
2: So people do measure the cytokines and I'm a little bit of a Luddite here. I have my doubts about our current cytokine profiles. There's a number of issues here. One is IL-1 acts in a very autocrine fashion. So if you measure IL1 in the serum, it doesn't tell you anything at all because it's extremely tightly regulated and actually IL1 is talking both to the cells that produces it and only to the cells in the immediate environment. So if you're measuring IL1 in a useful fashion, you have to do this purely in vitro and you have to be uh, doing whole blood preps. You can't just take some blood and measure IL1 it tells you nothing at all. IL6 is much more robust and has got a longer half life. My view at the moment, and this is partly a problem that our disease responses are so good, is that it's been a little disappointing. It sort of is, you're probably too young for this, but it's the Mandy Rice Davis problem, because what you see is, well, you would, wouldn't you? Uh, they're very unwell. These are, are cytokines astronomically high. You treat them and they drop, but you don't see your pivot point. And with the exception of some work that we did early in treating CAPS, where we could look using gene expression profiles and affimetrics at mRNA, and we demonstrated that the IL-1 pathway is largely under control by IL-1 itself. So it's overproduction of IL-1 that drives the whole IL-1 gene pathway, but doesn't drive the IL-6 pathway and doesn't drive the TNF-alpha pathway. At the moment, for the treatment, functional testing has been a little disappointing in predicting where we're going to go. I don't think that will be the case for the future. I think it is if you take the miracle, you just don't see your pivot point because it is so complete that you don't see your leader, if that makes sense. I think as we come to look at more difficult diseases like the interferonopathies, there an interferon score is really useful in telling you which diseases might be amenable. And there, because blocking interferon with Janus kinase inhibitors is actually a higher risk and more concerning treatment trial, that is very useful. So stepping back a bit, as a treating clinician, if you can get the drugs, IL-1 blockade in the short term is remarkably safe. We know this from the original treatment trials with IL-1 blockade, which was first planned on kinra. Which is recombinant IL-1 receptor antagonist, so it is a copy of a hepatically produced protein that we all make ourselves. Uh, and this was given at huge doses, 10 milligrams per kilogram, in ITU studies in patients who were dying of overwhelming sepsis. And it was given as prolonged 72-hour infusion in patients who were doing very badly with overwhelming sepsis. It didn't hit its primary endpoints and were withdrawn, but a subsequent to be a little harsh, data dredging reanalysis suggested that patients who were in a cytokine storm on the cusp of HLH did do better if they were given high dose anakinra. And certainly there was no increased mortality in patients who were in this setting. So we know that giving megadoses of anti-IL-1 does not increase mortality from sepsis even in the ITU setting. Uh, It does have a small risk of inducing neutropenia. Uh, But it's rheumatological neutropenia, not hematological neutropenia. So there's about a 2% chance of dropping your neutrophils below one, but they don't go below 0.5. And they certainly don't go below 0.1. And we're generally speaking, just watch them come back up again. There's a 4% chance of analogy. We have seen one case of anaphylaxis. Uh, There are case reports that you can desensitize. It's an inconvenient drug in that it needs to be kept in fairly tight, stored in fairly tight temperature requirements. It needs to be kept in the fridge. It's stabilized with citric acid, so it's a little stingy to inject. And there are local injection site reactions which come in the first few weeks of injection. So there are some issues around injecting it, particularly into kids. There's some issues around starting it, but it has proven remarkably safe. You get a readout very rapidly about whether it's working or not in our experiences the readout is very clear your blood tests get better your patient gets better and the hemoglobin goes up and it all happens very quickly so my view with il-1 blockade is it's often best just to give it a go and you'll get a quicker answer than functional testing i do not think that's the same with if you're going for the nf kappa b pathway or the interferon pathway when i think some functional testing beforehand is much more useful
0: Helen, you mentioned earlier about the shortened life expectancy. Can you tell us about some of the key complications of auto inflammatory diseases?
2: So, the most feared medical complication of auto inflammatory diseases was AA amyloidosis, in which you get systemic amyloidosis derived from the hepatic acute phase protein, serum amyloid A protein. Serum amyloid A protein in this circumstance is behaving completely normally, it is rising appropriately in response to inflammatory cytokines, particularly IL 6. Levels can go up more than a thousand fold, and they stay up as long as there's an inflammatory stimulus. And we know that in vulnerable individuals, uh, there's a risk of forming AA amyloidosis. And historically, the causes of AA amyloidosis have varied over time. So in the 19th century, this was largely infection, and it's changed a lot over time. Familial Mediterranean fever, it seems that historically, depending on your population, at least 60% of affected individuals got AA amyloidosis. And even in more recent series in Turkey, 13% of individuals developed AA amyloidosis untreated. This progresses to end-stage renal failure and death. This also was a major problem. An old series suggests that at least um, 25% of patients with CAPS and at least that number of patients with TRAPS And at least 10% of patients with navelonic kinase deficiency also develop this. So the auto-inflammatory diseases have an exceptionally high risk of AA amyloidosis compared to rheumatoid arthritis. And this probably reflects both the intensity of the inflammation and the fact that they've had it lifelong. This is a completely preventable disease if you stop inflammation, they don't get amyloid. If you can control inflammation and their renal disease isn't too advanced, the AA amyloidosis can reverse. And I'm very proud to say that the fever clinic that we have run in London, which has been running for now more than 20 years, nobody on our watch has developed AA amyloidosis. And the patients that we do have are we've had regression in almost everybody who we have seen and who we have got onto treatment and they either haven't gone into renal failure or have kidney transplants. So this is a disease that you can manage, but the key is prevention. And again, it's a very, this has been in terms of amyloid, my major interest. And it is a, I have to say on the whole, very sweet with only a tiny bit of bitterness that as I come towards what is beginning to be the end of my career, my disease, has gone from being 10% of the new amyloid that we see. So when I started to being, as I audit this every year, 1.8% of the new amyloid that we see. And it is disappearing because largely of advances in treatment of inflammatory diseases, particularly the advent in rheumatoid arthritis of anti-TNF agents. But the ability to stop patients having decade after decade of chronic inflammation means that this disease is gradually disappearing. And that is very nice to see therapeutic success gradually turning into, you can see the long-term damage disappearing.
1: Could you maybe just discuss a little bit about how inflammation causes amyloidosis and what AA amyloidosis is and is the only way to treat it to stop the inflammation? Is is that all you can do? At the moment, that probably is all you can do.
2: Um, So in other types of amyloid, there are beginning to be interest in a new generation of drugs that may come into AA amyloidosis. So in terms of treating amyloidosis at the moment, the ways of treating it, the longest standing and best proven form of treating amyloidosis is to turn off the supply of the fibril precursor protein. There are more than 30 different forms of amyloid in man. There's more than 13 different forms that form systemic amyloidosis. The trick in treating amyloidosis is to know what type of amyloid you are looking at, and then to target the specific precursor protein for that. So in AL amyloidosis, complicating uh, plasma cell disorders, it's chemotherapy to treat the plasma cells, to get rid of the monoclonal immunoglobulin. In AA amyloidosis, it is identify the underlying inflammatory disease and treat it. In some forms of genetic amyloid, it is target the underlying genetic disease. There have been major advances across the last five to ten years now in treatment of a particular type of hereditary amyloid called TTR amyloidosis, in which there have been enormous strides in targeting the variant protein with gene silencers, both silencing RNA and antisense oligonucleotides, and now with CRISPR techniques in actually completely taking out the TTR gene. This has transformed a really nasty, progressive hereditary. Uh, autonomic and sensor and motor neuropathy disease. This may be a model for other types of amyloid, uh, and it may be a model for uh, AA amyloidosis. There's also been interest in monoclonal antibodies directed against specific epitopes on the amyloid to try and encourage um, clearance of the amyloid deposits by macrophages. Uh, And this has been used in AL amyloidosis, and there's also now trials going on in TTR amyloidosis and other types of amyloid. There is an issue with AA amyloidosis in that it is a complication of chronic inflammatory disease and the patients are better off if you can treat their chronic inflammatory disease because it's not good for you to have a chronic inflammatory disease. So the neatest thing to do is to completely treat their chronic inflammatory disease. So you wouldn't particularly want to say to somebody with active rheumatoid arthritis, we're not going to treat your active rheumatoid arthritis, we're going to give you a brand new generation of drugs to treat your AA amyloidosis because they've got active chronic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis and it hurts and it's destroying their joints. But there are, of course, patients where either you can't identify their chronic inflammatory disease, and they're becoming a larger proportion of the patients we see with AA amyloidosis because we're better at treating the inflammatory diseases we can treat, or they have totally treatment refractory disease, which is why they're getting the AA amyloidosis, and they have been through every line of treatment available. And there, these alternative approaches may come to have a future. But the difficulty there in terms of drug trials is that this is a very small and rather complicated patient population compared with AL or the other types of hereditary amyloid.
0: The Final question now, Helen. What do you think is the most interesting thing coming down the line in this field in the next months or years? What should we be looking out for?
2: So one thing I haven't talked about at all is the acquired auto-inflammatory diseases in adults. And there's been enormously exciting work looking at somatic mosaicism. So the idea that actually our genetics is not fixed. And that as we age and somatic mosaicism, there are tremendous changes. And this can be very, very interesting in terms of pathology. And the real beautiful example of this is Vexas, which was published in 2020, and is a disease largely of men, because the responsible gene is on the X chromosome, and is a disorder of ubiquitination, which is presenting with what initially was thought to be Polychondritis, but we're now recognizing is also associated with a hematological um, phenotype with something that looks a bit like myelodysplasia and bone marrow failure, with vasculitis, with systemic inflammation. And there's increasing interest in what's going to happen with somatic mosaicism and what happens when you have fairly small percentage changes in critical genes. This is very interesting, both in terms of how the gene was found, which was non predicated genetic searching in patients with rare diseases, but actually looking uh, in genes that were predicted to be very, very intolerant of any genetic change at all for low-level somatic mosaicism. We also know that in our clinic, 10% of patients with CAPS have somatic mosaicism presenting as adults, and they have very low-level mosaicism. So I think there's huge interest there, and that will tie in with hematology because there's a lot of interest here with CHIP and with clonal hematopoiesis and what is happening as we all age and our bone marrow gets a bit dysregulated and whether you can target that. The other thing we haven't talked about is interferonopathies, blocking the interferon pathway. I think that's going to be very exciting in the future. Um, at the moment, uh, the Janus kinase inhibitors are a way into blocking the interferon pathway. That is a bit non-specific. The Janus kinase inhibitors have been transformative for patients where there is nothing at the moment, but better targeting with a lesser side effect profile would be lovely. And the other thing that, from the point of view of research, would be very interesting would be the NF-kappa B pathway, where there, again, is major unmet need. And finally, when we talk about inflammasomes led by patients, which is where this research came from, the interest has largely been in activating inflammasomes. But there are also inactivating inflammasomes. And there is a degree of interest in now in inflammasomes which are protective against inflammation and looking at them and I think that is also going to be a future as we then as we move from disorders innate immunity which are potentially involved in upregulating we start looking actually at the regulating half of innate immunity uh, and trying to actually understand how this is kept in check and we move away from what I think has been a little bit of an intellectual problem with innate immunity which was the initial assumption that because this was the half of our immune system that we share with non-vertebrates that this had not evolved and was very non-sophisticated and that uh, mammals really relied on acquired immunity and that this was just a bit of a remnant and everyone could ignore and the increasing recognition that RNA immune system is immensely sophisticated and tightly regulated and interesting and that there's a lot more uh, to look at here but particularly perhaps in the negative half now as well as the over-activating half
0: a lot to be excited about. I actually named my cat Vexus, well middle (laughs) name she's Pickles Vexus Redenwall. So Professor Helen Lachman, Professor and Consultant Nephrologist at University College London, thank you so much for joining us on the show.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Wow, that, that was brilliant. What I found really interesting was that patients with autoinflammatory inflammatory syndromes have a median of five wrong diagnoses before they're diagnosed. And that Helen said that some patients are referred to her from psychiatry. So it's just a reminder to not dismiss patient symptoms so easily. And sometimes there is a needle to be found in the haystack.
1: That's absolutely it, isn't it? I mean, I suppose a lot of the time, you know, people are referred with these and maybe it's not real, but it's not to dismiss people like you said they can come from all walks of life and and also the other thing is it didn't really matter what age they are i mean clearly these can be in very small children up of the way all the way into adulthood so to really consider this if the the picture fits right
0: yeah yeah that's exactly it
1: do you know what else was amazing then um, she was talking about this trial where she used three different orphan diseases to get together enough patients to actually be able to get a licensed drug for all of these three diseases, it seems like a really fascinating way to find treatments for rare or orphan diseases that have common pathways and that may otherwise never get a licensed drug.
0: Exactly. It's a very clever way to overcome the barriers to developing treatments for these rare
1: diseases. Yeah, no, it really is. It's just a, a very, very intelligent way to do it. And hopefully it'll be very beneficial for a lot of other people down the line who have got these diseases that a lot of drug companies are just I suppose unwilling to, to pay to try and license a drug for that disease. and um, I suppose that brings another episode to a close.
0: It certainly does. And it was great to learn so much about auto inflammation.
1: Autoinflammation?
0: What's that? <laughs> like auto inflammation, but with no L. No L. No L.
1: <laughs> oh, festive <laughs> pawn. Very good. I see what you did there. <laughs>
0: That was brilliant. I see I've had a great impact on you over the year.
1: I mean, arguably it's a terrible impact, Bianca, (laughs) but I'll accept it. Okay. So look, that's it for this month. And in fact, actually for this year, we just wanted to say thank you so much to everyone who has listened to us over this past year. This podcast has been a labor of love for the both of us, and we cannot thank you enough for coming on this journey with us.
0: And most importantly, we want to thank our contributors. Without your amazing willingness to share your knowledge and research, we wouldn't be here. It's meant so much to us and to our listeners. So thank you.
1: We very much hope you'll join us again in the new year for even more great episodes. And don't forget if you want to get in touch with us with comments or questions about the show, please email us at ImmunoTPodcast at gmail.com. So that's Immuno spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at immunity. That's T-E-A.
0: We'd like to thank our guest today, Professor Helen Lackman, our executive producer, Professor Niall Conlon, and our editor Aidan McKelvey. This episode of Immunity was sponsored by Farming Group. Thanks so much to you for listening and we'll chat to you again next month.
1: Goodbye for now and have a happy new year.